Well, it's good to see all of y'all. Happy Easter. If you're a guest, I'm David. I'm the pastor. We're so glad you're here. Appreciate you being here. Some of you are in the overflow out uh, over there in the commons area. We're sorry we don't have room for you here, but we appreciate you being here. Those of you that are at home watching online, thank you for not being here. Uh, it's kind of, it helps. Yeah. You want to know why we're in a building program? This is why we're in a building program, to, to do all of this stuff. You know it's Easter because it's crowded, and yes, I know, I'm wearing a jacket to the modern services. I kind of, you know, thought I probably should do that at least once a year. And uh, I've had several people come up to me and say, you know, you really look nice in that jacket. You look good in that jacket. I'm like, yeah, I know, that's not really the problem. I was never concerned about that, you know. Just don't want to wear a jacket all the time. That's the issue. But we're here. It's Easter. You know, the two big holidays for Christians, Easter and Christmas, and, and they celebrate the two real pillars of our faith. You know, Christmas, we celebrate who Jesus is, the incarnation, he's God in the flesh. And at Easter, we celebrate what he did, the resurrection. He went to the cross, died in our place for our behalf. God raised him back to life, and that's what we celebrate today, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're in the series, and we're ending it today. It started the 1st of March. The series is entitled Believe. And uh, it's, it's based on John chapter 20. And today, the passage we're going to be in is, is a passage that I've actually quoted for every one of the messages, even though I went through all of John 20, because it really is kind of the, the summation. It's the, kind of the climax of John's entire book. There's one more chapter left. It's an important chapter in chapter 21. This is kind of the climax. We're in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, in a message entitled Believe. I mean, that's the name of the message today. It's just like the series. Today it is Believe. We'll also be in one verse in chapter 19 to kind of pull everything together. And so what I want you to see in the message today and kind of bring this whole series to a conclusion is this. And it's really simple. At the end of life, only one thing will really matter. Did you trust Jesus with all that really mattered? Your life. Did you believe? I'm going to say at the end of your life, all that will really matter is did you believe? Did you believe Jesus is the Christ. And so as we, as we begin this message today, I want to start off talking to you about the fact that John understood what mattered most. That's why he wrote the book. Now, he probably wrote his gospel somewhere around 85 AD, give or take a year or two, depending on how you date things, we don't know for sure. It means Christianity's been around about 55 years, give or take a year or two. And John has seen everything in the Christian faith. I mean, he's been there for all of it. And he's at a point in his life where he understands that Christianity is being pressured from the outside. It's being persecuted, but it's always been persecuted. From the very beginning, I mean, you know, when they crucified Jesus, they began the process of persecuting Christianity. So he saw that. He saw corruption from within because he saw that there were those who came with inside Christianity and tried to get it and twist it and turn it to be a certain way. That's always been the case. Even today, Easter Sunday, I guarantee you there are some churches in our community where the people who are preaching do not believe in the literal body resurrection of Jesus. They'll say that resurrection of Jesus is symbolic, it's spiritual, that there's many ways to get to God. They'll preach, you know, basically, I'll just say they preach garbage all the time. And that's what they preach. And they don't believe truth. It's always been a problem. So John, he's been around the whole time. He is the last of the apostles. I mean, there's nobody left. And he has seen everything there is to see about Christianity. And he's this old guy. I mean, he's been there. He, was, he grew up with Jesus. They were cousins. They played together as kids, man. And he knew everything about Jesus there was to know. When Jesus began his ministry, John was one of the first to follow. He was the beloved disciple. He had seen everything. I mean, he'd been there for the miracles. He said, so Jesus turned water into wine. You know, the Baptists, we hate that miracle. 
Well, Jesus, why, of all the things to start your ministry, John, why did you do the water and the wine thing? My goodness, couldn't it have been some other miracle? But he saw all of that. He saw Jesus. You know, he knew Jesus went and talked to a woman at a well that no one would talk to but Jesus. He knew that. He knew that about him. And he's seen, he's seen everything. He had, he had seen the, the, the beginning of the persecutions. He remembered, you know, when Jesus, Jesus ascended, they started persecuting him. He knew his brother had been killed. His brother James killed, first apostle killed. He had been around and lived through all the apostles being killed. He was the last one left. And he knew all that. He knew what was going on. He remembered when Peter was killed and Paul was killed. And here they were suffering under the hands of this guy Domitian, the emperor who was persecuting, trying to just wipe out Christianity. And John sits back and reflects upon all this. And he's going to write his account of the life of Jesus. Now, there were already three others around, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they were great. They were fantastic. You know, there were some other things. Paul had written some letters. They were around. But John understood he was the last guy, and times were different. He needed to tell people about Jesus the way he understood Jesus. He sat down and he began to write. And he wrote this magnificent book. And he put in this book things that you didn't find anywhere else about Jesus. I mean, he put, you know, Jesus walking on water. He put Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He, he told us times when Jesus gave the I am statements, when he said, I am the bread of life, or, or I am the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He wrote all that down. You know, we saw last Thursday night when we had our, our services there for Priester, and he, he talked about you know, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, even the feet of Judas, who was betraying him. He did that. He wrote that Jesus did that. He wrote about Jesus saying, hey, I love you, and this is the new commandment. I want you to tell everybody that this is how you know you're my follower, that you love one another. He wrote all that down. He wrote all of that, and he wrote about the death of Christ. And he wrote something, all, all four Gospels write about the crucifixion of Jesus. All have Jesus saying something, but John records something that nobody else had. He records one thing that Jesus said right at the end. Now, Luke has the very last words of Jesus, Father, into your hands I give my spirit. But right before that, he said something else. In John 19, 30, here's what he says. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He said, it's finished. John gives us this. Now, I know you don't care about Greek. I get all that. But the Greek's an important language because the New Testament's written in Greek. Jesus would have spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. John wrote it in Greek. And the word, it is finished, is important. It comes from this word, um, telos, and the verb here, you know, teleo. It means to come to completion. It's used all the time in the New Testament. The other night, Thursday night, we saw that Jesus loved his own. He loved them till the end. Same word. You know, sometimes it's used and translated, you know, perfection. Be perfect because the heavenly father is perfect. Complete. That's what it means. And the cool thing about the Greek in the New Testament is Koine Greek. It's common Greek. It is street Greek. It's not the royal lush Greek that they could have written in. It's just Greek of everyday people. I mean, it's like, it's like where I come from in South Texas. If you were to write everything down in the language of South Texas, there'd be a whole bunch of things people wouldn't understand. There'd probably be some, probably some things in there you couldn't even say in church. That's for sure. You know where I come from. You know, the whole lot of sayings. But you'd write it. So people couldn't understand it, and that's how they wrote it. And so this word, telos, to bring to an end, there's, there's several times outside the New Testament we see the word being used, and, and there's some things they have found to discover, and there's three of them in particular. One, it was used about a guy who had a promissory note, owed some money, and they said he had paid off the debt in full. It was complete, finished, over. Another time it was about a, um, I got a guy who bought some property, and the person wrote, he did everything he needed to do to buy the property as finished as his. 
And there's this third one. This is cool. Some of you need the parents. You need to listen to this one. It was about a father who had a son. He sent his son off on a journey. And this is what he told the son. This is important. This is so important to, to today. He said, son, don't come back home, period, until you have finished everything. That's pretty cool. Leave. Don't come back. <laughs> and that's it. Be finished. And so that's what the word means to bring to completion. And here's the thing about Jesus when he said it is finished. He did everything that needs to be done. You know, it could be that he, you know, some people think what he's talking about, he, you know, did everything to pay for our sins. Yes, he did. Or he's through suffering on the cross. That's true. But here's the bottom line. When you realize that the resurrection is still to come, and the resurrection is guaranteed, by the way. Once Jesus dies, the resurrection is assured. God's going to do it. Nobody's going to stop God. Jesus is saying, I've done everything there is to do to bring about your salvation. I did everything necessary to pay the price for sin. It is all finished. And with that, they bury him. And then we come to chapter 20. This is where our series has been. And we saw that at the very beginning of chapter 20, one of the things that I made clear is none of the followers of Jesus ever expected Jesus to rise again. We have this idea, you know, that you hear in modern times, well, the disciples went and stole the body of Jesus, you know, to fulfill his predictions that he would come back to life. No, man, they thought he was dead and done. They went to the tomb. Mary went to the tomb, first one there, expecting to find the body of Jesus, and it was empty, and she was shocked. And she went and got Peter and John, and they were shocked, and they went there and looked. And by the way, John was the first to believe, because John looked in, saw the empty tomb, saw the burial clothes. That's what he saw, the burial clothes. And he realized that Jesus' burial clothes were folded up and pushed to the side. He realized nobody stole that body. He, he, he rose. But I said that first message I preached to you was about empty. That there was a tomb that held the body of Jesus, and it didn't. And that began it all, because you've got to do something with the empty tomb. And then we, we, the next message was, you know, alive. That people who saw Jesus dead then saw him alive. Mary had seen Jesus dead, then he saw him alive. And then he appeared to all the disciples, you know, that Sunday night of Easter. And we saw a series entitled, uh, A Call, where he called all them into service. You see me now, i got something for you to do. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And then two weeks ago, we saw Thomas doubting. Oh, doubting Thomas, man. He just wouldn't believe until he saw what the other apostles saw. And so last week we saw the message worship. Thomas, Jesus comes back into that room, and they're all there, but he comes to Thomas. He said, Thomas, take a look right here. Here's the nail print. Here's the side. He said, Thomas, stop being an unbeliever and start believing. Start believing. And Thomas bowed before him and said, my Lord and my God. And with that, Jesus told Thomas and the others, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe and never seen. And John then comes to these verses. He kind of brings it all to his climactic conclusion. Yes, there's one more chapter left. I told you that that's kind of like the epilogue, but this is coming to his unbelievable conclusion. Here's what he says in verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He did a lot of other things. He calls them signs. Signs are important. You know, we, we like signs. They tell us information. If you're a guest, you come into our facility, you probably look for, when you drove in for signs in the parking area to tell you what to do. You come into our building, there's kind of signage that says this is the worship center. And signs matter. And they mattered back then. Now, some people think that the signs have to deal with specific miracles. That there, In John, there are seven signs that, John did, that Jesus did, starting in chapter 2 through chapter 11. The first one is the water and the wine. And the last one in chapter 11 is the raising of Lazarus. And, and yes, but probably there's a much bigger view involved because there were a lot of things that were signs. 
from the beginning of the teachings of what John starts off with, you know, to all the things that Jesus did. I mean, Jesus hanging on the cross is a sign. The resurrection is a sign. These are all things that point to something. So he said, I wrote some of the things. I didn't write all the things. And, and in fact, in chapter 21, he tells us at the end of the book, if I wrote down everything, everything that Jesus did, you couldn't even contain them in all the books. So I says, I wrote some things down. But then we come to verse 31. And this is, this is the key to the whole book of John. But these things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by him believing, you might have life in his name. He said, I could have written a lot, but I just wrote some. And these I wrote for a reason. These things have been written. What things? All the things mentioned. All the things we see in chapter 20. All the things we see. I mean, you go back to the beginning of the book. John starts his book off by saying, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Then a few verses later, it says, and the word became flesh. He starts off with this magnificent passage. I mean, John was aware that their scriptures, Genesis begins, in the beginning God created. And John says, in the beginning, Jesus, the word, Lagos, was there. He was with God and was God. And he said, and the word became flesh. All of that happened. He wrote that. He wrote about Jesus doing unbelievable miracles. He wrote about Nicodemus coming to Jesus and Jesus saying, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then Jesus saying, for God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, that anyone who would believe in him would not perish with everlasting life. He put that in there. He put Jesus with the woman at the well. He just put all the things Jesus did. And he said, all of these things I wrote to you, all of it. And then he gives two statements. And then the Greek of these clauses that begin with this particular Greek word. I know you don't care about Greek, but it's an important word. It's the Greek word henna. And if you're, if you, you know, if you're like me and you've got to read Greek and do all that stuff, anytime you see that word, you know it's important. It either speaks of purpose or result. It's twice in this verse. It's hugely important because it gives the meaning of this verse and therefore the meaning of the whole book. And each time you translate, you basically translated that. And it's followed by the word belief. So he said, I wrote all these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The word, therefore, is the, the idea there is purpose. I wrote all this with the purpose. What is the purpose? That you might believe. I mean, that's what this whole book is about, you believing. The word believe is such a beautiful word. The word faith and believe, and I've shared this with you a thousand times, come from the same Greek word. Faith is pistis. I mean, to believe is pistuo, and, and it doesn't just mean mental acknowledgement. See, we have this idea that you mentally acknowledge. Okay, I believe that there's a God. I believe the Bible's good. I believe Jesus was real. That's not what it's talking about. It, it's a word that speaks essentially of movement, of commitment. To believe is to come to an understanding, and then you do something with that understanding. You have movement that goes with that understanding. You believe, and that believing you would trust. He says, so I wrote all this stuff down for you so that you might believe, that you might act on it, you might trust. And who are you trusting in? Well, Jesus, because the book's about Jesus. I mean, Jesus, the real historical person. And I wrote it so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God. Now, the word Christ is the Greek way of expressing the idea of a Messiah. See, the Jews believed in a Messiah who was going to be a descendant of David, a human, come from the line of David. And at some point, they were going to defeat the enemies of, of God. By now, it's the Romans and reestablish the Jewish kingdom. Everybody kept asking, Jesus, are you the Christ? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read them. They keep saying, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? John says, yes, he's the Christ. <clears throat> he's the one. 
He's the son of God, too. And be the son of God is deity. So not only is he the human Christ, he is deity. And so when you go back to John chapter 1, and he began the book saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, deity, Jesus, and the word became flesh, human, he is now saying Jesus did that. And I wrote this book so you would believe that. And you would trust him. And why would you trust him? Because of the resurrection. Jesus went on the cross and said, it is finished. I did all there is to do. They buried him. And then he wasn't there anymore. The tomb was empty. He was alive. We were called. Thomas doubted. He worshiped. I wrote all of that so you would believe. Then here's the cool thing he says. And that by believing. There's that second time he uses that Greek word, henna. That by believing, here's the result. The result would be this. That you would have life in his name. In his name, you would have life. Now, the idea of in his name means within the character. To us, names just identify people. And so, so, you know, lots of kids in our church, they all have names. Some of them really good. Some of them not so good. Some of the names are different. I'm getting used to the, the different names of people. But we, I work on it. So, you know, I'm trying the best. They all have names. You identify them. And some of you have kids. They're easy to identify. They're the only kid in our church with that name. Right? And that's cool, and that's what we do. But back then, names signified character, the person. And the name of Jesus isn't mystical. It's not magical. The name of Jesus is the character. And he says, you believe in his name, in Jesus. He says, you will have life. And the time of life, the term life is so cool. There's two basic words for life. One is bios, which gets flesh and blood, biology. And this one is zoe. And John is constantly talking about Jesus and zoe, life. Jesus says, I came that you might have life, Zoe, and you might have it to the fullest. He is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. God so loved the world, he sent Jesus so you could have life. Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life. John said, I wrote all of this. I reminded you constantly about what Jesus did. So you could have life, eternal life. Because here's the problem. You and I are sinners. You and I have rebelled against God. We live in that rebellion. And we have this huge problem. John's saying, I don't want you to live that way. So I wrote all this stuff. And I gave you all this evidence. I didn't make this stuff up. I gave it to you so you could have life. Here's the thing. Everything John wrote is for you and me. It's so we can believe. It matters. It's just that simple. He wrote this book. So you would believe. He understands there's struggles. He understands you have problems in life. He understands you might have doubts. He didn't deal with all those. He didn't worry about all that. He said there's only one problem that really matters. You and God are at odds, and it's your fault. And I want you to believe. So here's the thing. Because of the cross event... And the cross of him is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because of that, you can believe and have eternal life. You and I can believe. You and I can have eternal life. That's what matters. That's why John wrote the book. That's why all the evidence is there. It's not to solve all your problems. It's not to eradicate all your doubts. It's not to make everything easy. It's just to simplify it and say, I wrote it so you could believe. But here's the thing. The world we live in today, most people still refuse to believe in Jesus, to trust him and follow him. Most still refuse to believe. They're not going to believe. They're not going to trust. 
And I kind of follow. I mean, man, they believe in the sense that mentally, okay, I believe in God. It's a, I, you know, I believe in God. You know, I believe in the Bible. It's a book. It's a good book. And a lot of people, I mean, over 70% of Americans identify as Christians, but that's because they're not something else. Like, well, I'm not an atheist. And I'm Jewish. I'm not Muslim. And I'm not any of this. And I believe in God. You know, I was raised Christian. I went to church, so I'm Christian. That's kind of how they look at life. <clears throat> And a lot of them, when confronted with the opportunity to trust Christ, won't do it because they don't, they don't want to do that. I and mean, I've heard people say, you know, I don't, want, you know, I don't want to do all the rules and regulations of being a Christian. I'm like, okay. I, I, I don't know what those rules and regulations are. I've never read them, but okay. You know? And some say, well, you know, I don't want to be a Christian because I don't know why God allows this, that, and the other. And I always find it amusing how people take their moral, you know, here we are, rebelling against God, right? Sinning against God. And we take our moral values as sinners and we place them on God and say, I don't know why God does what God does. Well, of course you don't understand why God does what God does. You're rebelling against him. You're not going to get it all. And they say, well, I, you know, I read way back in the Old Testament this stuff that happened 3,500 years ago. And I don't understand that. Well, I, I don't either. Because I didn't live back then. I don't know what it's like to be a pagan who has no concept of the one true God. And he makes the gossip of their own imagination and then takes their babies and their children and sacrifices them to those pagan gods. I don't understand why God would be unhappy with them. Go ahead. And I hear people say, well, you know, I grew up in this church. This church, man, there were so many problems and the church split. I got it. The church I grew up in split. I was 15. It was a nasty split. I have pastored two churches that split before I got there, by the way. Not anywhere near as bad as the one I grew up in. And I hear people say, well, I know some Christians. They're horrible. They're hypocrites. Yeah, I know. I've been pastoring hypocrites my whole life, basically. <laughs> 40 years I've pastored hypocrites. I get it. I get it. But let me tell you something. You're not going to listen and what, really understand the evidence. You're not going to see that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus. You're not going to look at what Jesus went to the cross and died for you and that God raised him back to life. You're going to ignore that because you don't understand something that happened 3,500 years ago or you're struggling with this concept of God or you met this one Christian that was really bad. You're not going to trust Jesus with your life because of that. I'm telling you, that's dumb. Why would you not do that? It's like saying, you know, I don't believe in physics because I don't understand it. You know, I had college physics. I don't understand physics. I had a class. I had a lab. Did all the stuff. I don't understand. You know where I learned about physics? On the streets, man, growing up. That sounds kind of, that sounds kind of rough. But I mean, just as a kid, I learned a valuable physics lesson when I was a kid. I remember when I was eight years old, 1969. In my neighborhood, I was the youngest kid. Everybody was older. You know, I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be cool like the guys who were two or three years older. You know, it seems they're so cool now. Now I don't want to be two or three years older because that's just closer to the end, man, you know. And I'm just saying, I'm saying, you know, and these guys. And, and, and so they were always conning me to do things. And it always got me in trouble. And it always got hurt. I didn't realize that until later. But I was younger. Now, let me tell you this. <clears throat> About six or seven years later, you know, I would... They would still be two or three years older than me, but I was going to be about 40 pounds of muscles heavier than them, and I'd get revenge. I would. I mean, if you want to know what kind of revenge, I can't tell you what I got on them, but if you've seen the new John Wick movie, you're right there with me, man. <laughs> There's revenge coming. So I had this bike 
this banana seat bike. You know what? You don't know. Most of you don't know what a banana seat bike was. It's the coolest bike ever if you grew up. Banana seat, the bar in the back. And there was this kid in my neighborhood named Ricky. He was about three years older. Ricky, he was ugly. He's an ugly guy, man. I mean, his face was ugly. His laugh was ugly. And you know, and he got this brand new bike, this big heavy bike. And, and all the guys were saying, man, and you and Ricky need to have a game of chicken. Ricky said, yeah, David, let's have a game of chicken. You know what chicken is? Chicken is when the two bikes. And we'll use bicycles in this example. Come to court each other. And, you know, at the last minute, if you don't want to get in the crash, if you don't think the other guy's going to move, you can go out of the way and you chicken out or you can, you know, keep going and risk being crashed. I'm like, I don't want to get in a chicken with Ricky. Ricky's bigger. I don't want to. No, no, David, it's all right. You'll be able to do it. I said, okay, I'll try. I want to impress you guys. So we're getting in chicken and we're riding our bikes towards each other. You need to understand, I learned something. There's a moment in your life when you realize things are not going to go the way you planned. (laughs) There comes a moment in your life when all the promises your friends made, you realize they lied to you. We call that the point of impact. <laughs> so I hit, and Ricky and I crashed, man, and I'm flying over the handlebars of my bike onto the asphalt. Now listen, this was back in the good old days. I'm not wearing a helmet. I got no pads on. I see how some of these little guys in my neighborhood dress. It looks like, man, that, you know, it looks like something you would think of with, um, you know, the Knights of the Round Table of all the armor going out to a jousting match or something. I'm not kidding. I had this great park behind me. A couple of years ago, there was a mama in a stroller, stroller six inches off the ground. I mean, the bottom of six inches off the ground. I got a little two-year-old in the stroller. Kid had a helmet on and passed. I'm like, what? What are you going to do? You're going to push that kid in the street? What? There you go. Chicken with that car? Okay, I can see that. That's a gutsy kid. Now I, got, I fly over the handlebar. Man, I'm landing on the asphalt. I'm cut up. I'm bleeding. My bike's bent. Ricky's over there laughing. Ha, 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 ha. Nothing happened to me. Said in about six years, Bubba, something's going to happen to you. But that's another story for another time. <laughs> and so I go home. I take it. I have to wheel my bike home. There's my mama. She sees me. She looks at me. You know, I'm a boy. Baby boy, all cut up. She says, what happened? I told her what happened. She looks at me. She says, you're an idiot, man. <laughs> you're my oldest kid, and you're an idiot. An absolute moron. I didn't raise you to be that way. But I learned a valuable physics lesson that day. A heavy object and a light object traveling at a constant speed, when they collide, the heavy object always wins. That's the fancy, the fancy Greek term for that is the law of chicken. <laughs> you see, you don't have to believe in physics. You don't have to understand it all. It's still true. I don't understand all things about physics. But I know, I know some things. I know enough that I follow gravity. I follow the law of chicken when I drive and when I go around places. I follow physics all the time because even though I don't understand that, I know it's true. Listen, you don't have to know everything there is to know about Jesus. You don't have to have it all figured out. It's okay to say, well, you know, there's some things about God I don't understand. I get it. I probably don't understand those things either. It's okay to say, you know, in the Bible... Some things that happened way back 3,500 years ago don't make sense to me. I'm like, yeah, it don't make sense to me either. I, I get you, but you don't have to. Here's what I know. I'm a sinner, and I sinned against God. And, I'm, in, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm playing a game of chicken with my sin when I don't trust Jesus. I'm just playing a game of chicken thinking I can beat my sin, and I can't. And here's what I know. God loves me. All the evidence points to God loving me. And God sent Jesus to die on that cross for me. All the evidence points to that. And God raised Jesus back to life. He did all of that. And I read the book of John, and I'm saying, yeah, John, you were there. You saw it. I believe, John. You wrote all that stuff down there so I can believe. And if I don't understand everything else, that's okay. If I don't get it all, that's okay. John, I believe. Here's the thing. 
you need to realize you need to trust Jesus because your life depends on it. We're playing chicken with your life, man. You're not going to win that game. You're not going to win playing chicken. Sin's always going to beat you unless, unless you trust Jesus. And you don't have to get it all. You don't have to understand every bit of it. You just need to know he loves you. And he died for you. And God raised him back to life. And if you believe, John says, if you will believe, you'll have life. Eternal life forever. And then when you get to be with Jesus in heaven, you'll understand it all. I can wait. I'm patient. Because what I really want more than anything is not to live in sin. Because what I really want more than anything is not to live in rebellion against God. What I really want more than anything is to have eternal life to believe. So it's Easter. You're in church. Jesus is risen. Jesus is Lord. So what are you going to do about it? John wrote his book at the end of his life. And he wrote it for one simple reason. Because he knew this. That at the end of your life, only one thing will really matter. Did you trust Jesus with all that really mattered? Your life. Did you believe? And that's the question you ask. Do you believe in Jesus? And if not, you can trust him with your life today. Today you can believe. You don't have to understand everything. It doesn't have to all make sense. But you can believe and follow Jesus. So we invite you to do that. To trust Christ to be the Savior of your life. And as some of us stand here, we invite you to come. And if you've never trusted Jesus to give your life to him, we can pray with you about anything. Or, you know, you can join our church. If you're over in the, lift, uh, the, the room where people that's kind of spilled over out there outside the commons, there'll be someone over there you can talk to as well. But listen, whatever happens to you today, whatever goes through your life today, understand the single most important thing is that when you walk out this door, that today you believe. And so, Father, we thank you so much that here on Easter Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of Christ Jesus our Lord, that he died in our place on that cross on our behalf, that after he was buried, you raised him back to life. People saw him. And he calls us. He calls us to do the one thing that we can do, believe, to trust him completely. And so we believe, Father. We trust. We give our life to you. And we pray that you will, Father, move us towards you. In the precious name of Christ our Lord. Amen. And amen. Would you stand? You come. We'll be here.